This is Rebecca from New Haven, Connecticut. You are listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be talking about the novel The Optimistic Decade, first with the author, Heather Abel, and then with my guests, Chris Jansma and Brad Ridke. The decade is the 1990s, the first Bush is president, the Iraq war is imminent. Rebecca Silver is finishing her freshman year at Berkeley, excited for her summer internship at her father's radical leftist newspaper, ready to follow in his footsteps and remedy injustice through activism. But then plans change. Her father shuts the paper down, telling his readership he's doing so in an attempt to stop pretending I'm having any impact on the horrors of our world. Rebecca is persuaded to go be a counselor at her cousin Caleb's utopian camp, Lamalo, in the wilds of the Colorado Rockies. Caleb's approach is different than her father's. He wants to change the world one camper at a time, through love and ritual, sending them back into society transformed. Yet there are questions about how Caleb came to acquire Lamalo in the first place. Questions about whether he's a visionary or a huckster. Questions about whether it's possible to be both at the same time. Having grown up grounded in the certainty of her parents' convictions, Rebecca is forced to grapple with who she is and how to be when that certainty is taken from her, and she has to confront an unjust world without it. I had the opportunity to speak with author Heather Abel last week, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Heather Abel graduated from Smarthmore and received her MFA from the New School. She lives just up the road from us in Northampton, Massachusetts. The Optimistic Decade is her first novel. Heather, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH Community Radio, 103.5 FM. I'm so happy to be here, Sid. So I wanted to start by asking you about your decision to set your novel in the 1990s. What was it about that decade in particular that made it feel like the right time for the themes that this book is grappling with? So the book is grappling with a lot of things, but maybe the first one that always comes to my mind is idealism and disillusionment. And I actually wanted to start the book in 1982 or 1983, which is sort of the chronological start to the book. The Mm -hmm. book, the front story of the book takes place in 19. in 1990. But the there's a backstory that's interwoven with the book that takes place in 1982 and 1983. And what happened in those years out in Colorado was that ExxonMobil came out and said, oh, we know how to get oil shale out of the ground and turn it into oil and we're going to make tons of money. But even better, we're going to give everyone jobs. So there was a huge boom and people just flooded to Colorado towns were totally transformed people were lining up for jobs lining up for houses and then within a year they pulled the plug overnight you know people woke up in the morning and they said sorry you don't have a job anymore i know you sold everything to come here but no severance no nothing goodbye and they walked away unscathed and the communities were really changed and i was very interested in booms and busts of the energy resource companies and what it does to the landscape and the community and how it, in a way it reminds me of a person's own journey from 
idealism to disillusionment. It's a stretch, but it was something that was very strong in my mind when I was starting to write it. So I actually wanted to start in 1982-83 for that reason. And I wanted to end the book with a protest against the Gulf War, the very beginning of this wars that have never really ended, which are in many ways over oil, which started, that one was, I think, January 15, 1991. So I had those parameters in mind as I sat down to write the book. And then the cultural details were very relevant to me with what I wanted to talk about. But it was an external, external parameter really set the time. How did you first learn about that Exxon situation in Colorado and that boom and bust? Well, after I graduated from college, about a year after, I moved to this very tiny town in Colorado, which is called Paonia, and I got a job as um, at the High Country News, which is this wonderful, very scrappy, now less scrappy, but at that time quite scrappy newspaper, an environmental newspaper that covers the Mountain West, so all of the West except for the coastal states, although now they do. And it was fantastic. I got to, you know, go down into gold mines and talk to protesters and fly over clear cuts in helicopters, and I got to write about all sorts of really fascinating things. And that's when I got interested in booms and busts and how these this landscape was just transformed by these companies. So I was in, I only stayed there. I stayed there for about three or four years. And it was much after that that I started the book, but I, I knew about it from that. And was it always in your head as something that you wanted to write about? Yeah, I was so in love with that landscape from the day I arrived. I'm from California, but my family is very East Coast centric. My parents are New York Jews and they ended up raising us in California for their work. But we were always told, you know, you belong back East. We'll go back East. You know, it's always was called back East. And then I got to Colorado and I, I was just like, I'm home, but mm -hmm. maybe I'm not home, but I love it here. I love, I just feel alive in this landscape. And so I, knew I wanted to write about that landscape because I think that my feeling about it is not just mine. People have come there always and have these feelings, not just of loving it, but of wanting to own it or change it in a way. And I understood that. There was part of me that wanted to say, I belong here or this is mine. And that's part of what has remade that landscape in those communities so many times. And I wanted to write into that feeling. And so you started as a journalist, but you're now a novelist. Yeah. And I'm curious about that transition. And also, you know, you started by writing about these things, about these booms and busts and about oil as a journalist. And now you're writing about them as a novelist. And it, and it's striking, too, because, of course, in the in your book, Rebecca, one of your main characters, her parents run this newspaper. And there's a lot of skepticism, especially on the part of her father of fiction. And why would you read about people who don't exist? And at the end, I don't, again, this gives too much away, but Rebecca has switched her college major and she has become an English major, a literature major. And it feels a little less like an embrace than kind of a defeat or a surrender. So I'm curious about your thoughts on that, about the sort of nonfiction versus fiction dichotomy. Yeah, I think that I definitely, I mean, I grew up in a family that loves fiction. You know, whenever I was like a sulky teenager, my mom would say like, there's Pride and Prejudice, don't talk to me until you're done, or here's to the lighthouse. Like, that was her way of fixing things, and it, it did fix a lot of things. Um, so it's not like we disparaged fiction, and yet coming from a pretty political activist background, nonfiction seemed the quickest route to social change. 
And that was so important to me. And I loved stories. I took more English classes than anything else in college, but I wouldn't be an English major, you know, because as I said, this is made up stuff about made up people. How can this change the world? So it it was a real personal struggle for me to, to admit to myself that what I most wanted to do was to tell stories about made-up people in a made-up town. And that was how I was going to spend my time. It was a real push-pull for me. I definitely privileged nonfiction above it for years. And then there was this, well, there was this one day where I was in Moab, Utah, which is a fascinating town because it's a site of absolute gorgeous, you know, canyon lands and all these national parks, uh, arches, all of these people who are there for recreation, these people who have lived there forever, miners. It's just really contentious cultural mix. And I was there and I thought to myself, well, if I write an article about this, I know exactly how it will start. I know the lead, I know the quotes I need to get, and I know basically how it would end. But if I wrote a novel about this, it would be, I would learn, I would learn something I don't know already. And I really wanted to do that. And that was the moment I knew I wanted to write fiction. And it took me a bunch of years before I admit, you know, let myself go get an MFA. And then even years after that, before I let myself start a novel. But I knew for a long time that I wanted to. And do you feel now like you can say that you feel like fiction can be a motivator of social change? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think stories are what keep us alive, and we can't create social change unless we're alive. I think stories change our minds about people, about events. I think they are full of nuance and complication that's so necessary. You know, we see how the lack of nuance gets us into a lot of trouble. So, yeah, I'm a big believer in stories for all sorts of change, personal change, social change. I think it, we need to amplify who gets to tell stories and whose stories are published. But I think that stories are really essential. Yeah. So can I ask you what year you started writing this novel? And then I have a follow-up question to that. I started the novel, I think, in 2002, and I took many years off um, in, in between times. So there were many years I wasn't working on this, but the beginning seeds of it or maybe the beginning draft of a novel that somewhat resembles this novel was begun then. So my follow-up question is, you know, that it feels like most of this novel was probably written prior to the 2016 election. Um, oh, yeah. Do you feel now in the times, the times in which we're living, the political times in which we're living especially, that the novel feels particularly relevant in a way that maybe you didn't know it would feel when you were writing it? Yeah, I think I was, I think I got pretty complacent in the Obama years. You know, I was... Um, was our op optimistic decade? <laughs> that was all optimistic decade. And I was a new mom. I was not as involved in politics as I'd been before in my life. And I was finishing up this book and I thought, oh, I wonder if people are even going to care. Who even protests anymore? And then, of course, the world changed. Our world changed. And two parts feel really relevant to me. One is the class conflict that was always at the center of the book that really motivated me to want to write the book and was a class conflict I saw, you know, 20 years ago when I was reporting in Colorado and that was really came to the fore during the election. Um, so it didn't seem new to me at all. It seemed like, oh, I've seen this coming for a while. And the other part of the book that seems relevant is, you know, how do we 
make change when so many attempts fail all around us? Mm -hmm. How do we keep from getting mm -hmm. discouraged? How do we keep putting one foot in front of the other? Do we keep putting one foot in front of the other? Do we keep holding up and protest even when we don't know the efficacy of any of our actions? And um, those issues that I've struggled with and thought about my whole life, really, but I do think there are a lot of people thinking about that right now. Yes, I think that's I think that's very much true. Well, I want to turn a little bit and talk a little bit about the process of writing the book and about the structure of the book. You've got these multiple perspectives in the novel. You've got Ira, who's Rebecca's father, Caleb, the camp founder, Don and Donnie, the father and son from whom Caleb originally acquires the land, David, who's Rebecca's childhood friend and this devoted Vamalo attendee, and then Rebecca. And I was struck by the fact that only one of those voices is female. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that choice. Yes, I was struck by that too when I finished <laughs> the book. <laughs> it was one of the things where I thought, Heather, you're a feminist. I mostly read books by women, which means I read many women characters. All of my very favorite books are by women about women, and that's been true most of my life. So it surprised me. And um, I think there's several answers to that. One answer is Rebecca is the, the centerpiece of the book in many ways. But what I wanted to show Rebecca doing was being surrounded by men, being surrounded by these male voices that take up a lot of space and these male stories that seem more important than hers. Mm -hmm. And I wanted Rebecca to come into her own. So I, I wanted her to feel crowded out. So there was that reason. Um, the other reason is, and I wrote about this in an essay that was published a couple months ago in the Paris Review, which was I wrote um, some of this while my kids were very small. And it was really hard for me to claim the space to go and write. I felt like I should with them. It was, it was hard to take my ambition seriously during those years. It felt like I was taking something from them. And one way that I could let myself or trick myself into staying at the desk was to sort of pretend I was a man. And that, that became easier when I wrote about men. I, I, I enjoyed embodying the men at that moment. I also was really interested in writing about power. So power between men and women, power between men and men. And that was an interesting thing to do from inside the men instead of just from a woman looking at them. I wanted to feel how they felt in conversation with each other. You know, not everyone gets equal time or equal space. And I'm curious about how you figured out the balance there of how much room to give each person whose perspective you offer. So some of that was trial and error and feel. I knew that, you know, the story is Rebecca's, but it's also Caleb's and it's also David's. And then Don and Donnie have a less time. Ira has a voice, but much less of a voice. Mm -hmm. And it was really about whose perspective was needed in a scene. You know, as the story moves, the different plot points had to happen in the different scenes. And I needed to think, well, who, whose vision, do I, whose eyes do I need to see this through? And that's how I would feel it as I went along. And then when I was done, I did go back and think, okay, we need a little more David here. Like David in the beginning, I, that the, the first David chapter is actually one of the newest things, the most recent things I wrote, because I realized that David needed his real introduction to the story. He couldn't just be seen by outside eyes. You didn't get the sense of who he really was. And I loved writing that chapter. I, I really loved being inside David. 
Well, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the book starts in 1990, and a lot of it takes place during that summer of 1990, and that section is written mainly chronologically. But within that, there are these interspersed sections from the past telling the story of how Caleb came to acquire and to found Lamalo. And those are actually told in this backward chronological order. So I'm curious about your process there. You know, did you write those sections separately? Did you write them in order first and then break them up to tell the story backwards? And then in your decision both to include them at all um, and to decide sort of, you know, the order in which to put them in. So I actually wrote those all first. In the very first draft years and years ago, it, you know, I started in 1982, wrote through 1983, really was interested in, and it was very different. It was a very different story then. But I was very interested in Caleb meeting Donnie and what that relationship would be like. So Caleb is this um, East Coast Jew, atheist Jew, but cultural Jew, who came out West to start a new world, to start this utopian summer camp and to save kids and help kids. And Donnie is this guy who grew up in this small town and was a miner and, and a rancher and lost all his money, bankrupt. And I wanted to see the two of them together. There's a real, you know, there's power Caleb has that Donnie doesn't have and Donnie has in the story that Caleb doesn't have. And I wanted to, I was interested in that. So I actually started then. And then, you know, you get to this point and it's so heartbreaking when you realize, okay, the book doesn't start then. I'm interested in that. And that stuff is important. The book starts with Rebecca going to this camp. And that was great. It really changed the book and made it more alive. But I wanted to keep those because I love the story it told of friendship and power and, and decisions one makes about how one presents oneself in the world. And I did them backwards just to really keep some suspense. You know, if I started off backwards, you would know what would happen. Oh, Caleb got this, mm -hmm. you know, he, he did this thing, this is what happened. And I wanted it to be a, a sense of discovery for the reader that took place over time. So tell me about Rebecca. How did she come to be? If the book started without her, at what point did she kind of enter your consciousness? She came in pretty pretty soon after. I knew I wanted to have a cousin who was a girl and a young woman. And I wrote a scene of her at home with her parents. And so I, I wrote about her and David and this very close friendship in this activist community. That some, you know, I'm not, I'm definitely not Rebecca and her parents are not my parents. But that's the most sort of autobiographical milieu. So you, you started, when you, once you realized that the novel started with Rebecca's summer at this camp, how much of the book did you know when you started the writing? How much did you outline? How much of a sense of the plot trajectory did you already have? And how much kind of evolved in the writing? Um, for me, a lot has to evolve in the writing, which is so inefficient. I really wish I could be more of an out outliner. But I, you know, what I, I end up having to write the whole story over and over and over to figure out the pain and to figure out what's going to happen. I knew the ending. I knew where I wanted Rebecca to get and and I knew what happened to and and I knew where I wanted Caleb to go. And then I had to feel myself through that quite a few times, trying out different things before I got them there in the way that ultimately felt worked. In the acknowledgments, you make reference to the fact that at one point, um, perhaps you had killed off the character of David. So I wonder if you could tell me about that. Why did you first think he needed to die? And then why did you decide to let him live? So David died for years. That was what <laughs> happened in the book. <laughs> in my mind, that was, 
it's drama, and that's what happened in the book. And I started working with, um, when I sold Algonquin, I worked with this wonderful editor there named Kathy, and she really questioned that. You know, she really said, I think that with him dying, what you get is a bereft Caleb. And they can't act out of that grief. They were really frozen. And so the book had a lot of energy and had a lot of sort of interpersonal growth. They were learning to get changing and lying to each other and trying to trust each other became more static because these two people who were so connected to David in very different ways felt a tremendous amount of grief and guilt. And I couldn't get them from there really to the ending. Mm-hmm. And I had tried it very different ways. She said, what if he doesn't die? And I, I remember where I was when she said that. I was, you know, in my car and I pulled over and I thought, no, that's what the book's about. And it was literally an hour later when I thought, oh, you're right. That really solves everything. I, I can see that I can see the trajectory. I can see the movement now with him still alive. Well, without giving too much away, one of the things we don't know at the end is what has happened to or what's going to happen to Caleb. And that felt different from the endings that you give your other characters, which which I wouldn't call tidy, but they're maybe more directed. So maybe we can finish up here by talking about why Caleb gets this different, more open kind of ending. Well, Caleb is our visionary. And um, one thing I'm writing about in the book is visionaries being flawed. So we see mm. a lot of Caleb's flaws. But visionaries are also our guides in some way. They are they are people who are seeking a different truth. They are people who are looking for the sublime. And so even though Caleb is this incredibly flawed human, like every visionary I've ever met or heard about, he is also a seeker. And I don't think I want to know what the seeker ultimately finds. I want to think of the seeker as seeking, and every reader gets to imagine or decide what happens to him once he sets off in his final journey. I want that to be something that the reader, having lived with him, having had their own experience of desiring deeper truth or a higher truth or a truth, however you want to give that truth, I want them to have that, that their own experience with him in that way. Heather, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's been so lovely. Thanks so much. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH Community Radio, 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to introduce my guests, Chris Jansma and Brad Ridke. Chris first appeared on Book Talk talking about his own terrific novel, Why We Came to the City, now out in paperback. He was most recently on the show discussing Claire Massoud's novel, The Burning Girl. Brad is a high school English teacher, and he was most recently on Book Talk discussing Allegra Goodman's novel, The Chalk Artist. Brad and Chris, great to have you both back. Good to be here. It's great to be here, Sid. Thank you. So I wanted to start by talking about one of my favorite moments of the book. It's a very small moment mentioned almost in passing at the end of the book. Caleb has been forced to sell Lamelo, but he's remained on as a kind of hired hand to the buyer, this developer, And Don, the rancher from whom Caleb originally bought the land, has had a stroke and is pretty incapacitated. And we're told not only that Caleb used some of the proceeds of selling Lamelo to buy Don an apartment, but also, and this is on page 340, quote, 
Caleb had been coming every afternoon to sit with Don for a stretch. He'd drag a kitchen chair into the living room, hold Don's left hand, talk to him about God knows what. And I wondered if you both were also struck by that moment and how, if at all, it affected your final impressions of Caleb. I, I really did like that moment. And I thought Caleb's sort of journey as a character was, for me, the most fascinating one in the in the novel. I, I was very sort of curious about him. And I felt that was a really nice payoff for uh, for us as readers by the time we get to the end of the book. There's so much in this novel, which is really, you know, very wonderful. There's so much in this novel about how to help people. Everyone seems very concerned with how to make a difference, how to help everyone else. And this was sort of one of these moments where we actually get to see Caleb do that in a very real way, which I, I really thought was very beautiful. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Chris. I, you know, it, it was a redeeming moment, I think, for Caleb at some point. It was also a little bittersweet for me because it, it was another iteration of, well, he'd gotten paid, what was it, four times, what, eight times or something, right? So he sort of had this extra money in a way. And so, sure. yes, thank goodness he spends it the way we would have wanted him to in a kind of redeeming way. Um, but at the same time, where the money came from, um, it sort of contributes to the, in some sense, the further decline. Right. But, you know, for me, it was so much less about him buying the apartment and so much more about him coming every afternoon to sit with Don. Because I think you're right, Brad. If we had just found out that he spent some of the money, it's almost like blood money. You know, like mm -hmm. he knows, like he bought the ranch from Don under somewhat false pretenses. I mean, I think it's, you know, it was not an illegal purchase the way Don's son Donnie claims. But there were definitely some, you know, false pretenses there. And he now sells it and makes, you know, a really big profit and maybe feels like he kind of owes it to Don to to share that with him in some way. But the fact that he comes every afternoon and he sits with him and he talks to him and he holds his hand, I don't think he's getting any credit for that. Like, he's not getting any credit in his own mind and he's not getting, you know, I mean, you think, I think Don's girlfriend and Don's daughter-in-law and his son appreciate it, but that's not why he's doing it. And it, mm -hmm. for me, it was a really redemptive moment because I actually had a lot of sympathy for Caleb throughout in spite of his, you know, cult leader ways. And but especially at that moment, you feel like there is a really kind person at mm -hmm. the heart of it. And he's doing that because he actually cares about Don and he's always cared about him. And it's and Don's friendship and Don's respect has always been important to him. And he's going to follow through on that in this way that Don's own son has trouble doing. You know, Don's own son, I don't think, sits with him and talks to him in that way. And so that was just like a moment for me of Caleb showing that, you know, at his heart, the things that are most meaningful to him are relationships and the sense of, of trust uh, and friendship which maybe is not what I would have taken away from it without that moment. Yeah, I, it, it reminded me of earlier in the novel, there's a conversation early in the novel where some of the characters are talking about what a mitzvah is and what it means to do a mitzvah for someone. I was reminded of something I learned, you know, back when I was sort of studying some uh, about Judaism a little bit, that one of the sort of the highest forms of a a mitzvah is something that you do without getting credit for it or, or, or you do without 
do something kind for someone that others don't know about or something. And it, it, for me, that seemed like what Caleb was sort of doing. I, I, I think also, as, as you're pointing out, Brad, that he's also, you know, sort of dealing with his own guilt there for, you know, sort of what he's, what he's, you know, sort of done. It was one of the things I really liked about his character is it was really complicated. It's, it, there were no real easy answers for him. But I did feel like he was sort of trying to do the right thing. Well, I also was struck by the ways in which the Don and Caleb relationship, especially at the end, really replicates a father-son relationship. Mm. You know, by Caleb going and kind of sitting with him every afternoon, it's in some ways what you would expect a son to do. And I think that Caleb in some ways has always viewed Don as a father figure. You know, we, we learn that his own father committed suicide when he was a young teenager, but was always this outdoorsman and loved the mountains. And I think Caleb's journey, Caleb's seeking in large part is seeking to know his father and to also gain the respect of this father who never really knew him as a man. And Don comes to kind of embody that for him because his own father can't be there. And, you know, that moment at the end, again, is Caleb being able to care for this man who, in a way that he couldn't take care of his own father, he couldn't help him or save him. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of replaces him with Don and does what he can to help and, and save this alternate father that he, I think, recognizes that, you know, maybe he has let down or failed in a lot of different ways. Yes, <laughs> in a lot of ways. And then at the same time, I'm looking just on that same page, Sid, but you pointed us to, it's, it's such a rich moment. And we get, from Donnie's perspective, Donnie stood above them. He was the man of the house now, but not the hero. Caleb was the hero after all, the good son. I think Caleb senses that too, right? He's a smart guy. He understands how his presence there has been sort of received by Donnie. So I think, you know, he, he gets that and he's stuck. Right? He can't, it, it's sort of to do well by Don is to then become even more of this kind of difficult figure that Donnie sees him as. Yeah, there is this, this, fraternal relationship between Caleb and Donnie, you know, where they each have qualities that the other in some ways admires or, or is jealous of. And so as much as Caleb comes in as the privileged white upper middle class, you know, East coast educated individual, when he first meets Donnie wants to be like him, you know, he, he buys mm -hmm. the cowboy hat. That's exactly like, Donnie is like, he's trying to kind of take on this persona. I think he sees Donnie as the real man. And then Donnie, of course, is so threatened by him because Caleb has the financial backing to be able to take his land away. And so there is this way in which, you know, there are these questions of masculinity and power that I think motivate both of them. They are both questioning, you know, what it is to be a real man in society and how much of that is dependent on money, how much mm -hmm. money imparts power, and how much of it is dependent on these kinds of other things, you know, this ability to, like, work with your hands, to, to know the land, to get things done, mm -hmm. you know, which is what Donnie represents. And, and neither of them is kind of feels really satisfied or at peace with the place that they find themselves in. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I was also struck by how many characters in the novel sort of come back to Ira, who we meet, you know, kind of early on, and he's never there 
at the you know the camp with them but he and the and his new, uh, newspaper seemed to be sort of behind it every time i thought we sort of understood sort of how how he figured in it would come back and i thought that was a really interesting irony at the end that Ira's uh, he feels as if he's done nothing and he hasn't accomplished anything with his with our side now and in a weird way like none of this would even be happening if it wasn't for him and and all the connections that people have back to Ira and to that newsletter he seems to feel so defeated and he doesn't I don't think he appreciates exactly what he has set in motion on a personal level well it's interesting that he represents yet another idea of masculinity you know he is the one who has embraced this idea that education and information are what can change the world and has devoted his life to this kind of intellectual activism. It's not a ivory tower activism. He's not a professor. He's on the ground as a journalist trying to uncover things and, um, and expose them and open people's eyes to what is in front of them. A very different kind of masculinity than either Donnie represents Mm -hmm. or Caleb represents or aspires to and yet that idea of masculinity also kind of gets turned on its head and defeated in the end, as you're saying, Chris, you know, he ultimately also feels incredibly disempowered by the world in which he operates. And it was interesting to me the way that all of these men in some ways embody kind of classic stereotypes of what it is to have male privilege, and yet they all feel really disempowered despite having it yeah i think that the they all seem to want to battle these forces that are so much larger than them even you know political forces international goings-on the lands out there around the camp and just nature itself and and they're yeah in different ways they're all sort of running into the limits of that power and they seem really sort of perplexed by it i thought that was a, a you know fascinating sort of echo throughout the book that um, they all have to sort of come to terms with the limitations of what they're doing. But I, I don't, but I also think that, you know, Ian, or sorry, I seems to feel that he hasn't been able to accomplish anything. Uh, I think the book in a nice way sort of reminds us that he's not, he's not right there. I keep coming back to the way this book feels to be about fathers and sons too. The way that I feel like the sons are both, seeking their father's approval, but also resenting the ways that their fathers have let them down, disappointed them, failed them in some way, and how mm. they are seeking alternate father figures and how much that motivates all of them. So I'm thinking about David. I was thinking about him, you know, in terms of like what kind of model of masculinity does he represent? I think he doesn't know yet, but, you know, yeah. his father is this activist attorney, yet another model of a way to change the world. And yet, you know, David feels like he does not live up to the ideal son that his father wants. You know, his father wants someone who's academic, who can follow in his footsteps, and that is not who David is or has ever been. And so David turns to Caleb as an alternate father, an alternate, you know, possibility of of someone whose expectations perhaps he can fulfill. And at the end when Caleb kind of turns on him out of his own anger, it really has nothing to do with David, just has to do with, you know, the things going on in Caleb's own personal life. But Caleb rejects him and tells him, like, you're never coming back to Lamalo. It is such an important rejection because it's essentially like another rejection of a father, another father telling him, 
you're not good enough. You're not the son that I wanted. And of course, that leads to David's accident, which feels kind of, you know, ordained in some way that, you know, without a father's guidance or love, he he falls, right? Like he, he falls off a cliff. And they're all kind of seeking that, they, that they need that in some way. I think that's right, Sid. And I was really curious, too, about the ways um, in which these belief systems that the, the major characters have get tested, right? And, and they're such strong believers. So we see that in David's father. He's this He's, he's an environmental activist and attorney, and then, then he sort of, I guess, retreats, you know, when push comes to shove and, and threatens in this very kind of strong-handed, stereotypical attorney-ish way, like, you're, you're mm-hmm. never going to work with kids again. This camp's never going to see a kid again, and, and, and it works. And in, in a similar way, maybe we see that in Caleb. He's, he's sort of all love of the land and love of people, and then, again, when he gets backed into a corner, it's... Th- those things fall away, and it's hard to maintain against some of the external pressures. I'm really curious about Rebecca's role in all of this, because we've been talking a lot about the men and fathers and sons, but I'm curious about the women. So both Rebecca, but also Rebecca's mother, who is co-editor of the paper and yet has no say in its being shut down when Ira decides to shut it down, and in David's mother, who we know was left by... David's father for another woman, and maybe even Suze, Caleb's ex-girlfriend, who was one of the original counselors at the camp, and then stayed and lived with him for a few years there, but finally left and, and towards the end of the novel makes a return visit. I'm, I'm really curious about how you see these women as operating in what feels like a world that is largely peopled and driven by men. That's a great point, Sid. I think I've been thinking about that a lot, too. And for me, at least, the, the, it's... Certainly by the end, it's the women, including Rebecca, who find this, I think, kind of reasonable role, for better or worse. They, they, they navigate in a much more tempered, I think, reasoned way. So we watch Ira's wife, who is still involved in activism, right? She's disappointed about the, the shutting down of our side now, but yet she carries on. And I think when, when we see David's mother's response to the accident right it's much more tempered and sort of warm than his father's and then perhaps in rebecca too right i I was a little struck particularly at the end with her relationship with the the new boyfriend right who seems like a, a placeholder of some sort and she's you know more or less okay with that for the moment i think expectant that something else will come along later but she doesn't object vigorously or she's she's found a, a I don't know if quieter is the right word but a, a different path certainly from from the the loud sort of outsized male figures yeah I I really enjoyed Rebecca's character a lot and in some ways I wish she was in the novel even more it, it sort of opens with her and I think I maybe you know started reading the novel with the expectation she was going to be the sort of the central character and one thing I noticed as I as I, we read on is that you know more and more the other the men are kind of coming in and crowding her out. But I think uh, Heather did a really sort of interesting thing there by sort of matching that theme as it goes along. I was really struck when we started getting into sort of the the history between Rebecca and David, and uh, we started to hear the sort of the story of the of the braces and the rubber bands on her teeth, and it just it was it was so painful and moving to to read about, you know, sort of how hard she was trying to live up to these very, you know, kind of nebulous expectations of her father's. And, you know, she thinks she's doing one thing right and she gets, you know, she puts them on and then 
he gets upset and she takes him off and he gets more upset. And I thought all of that was really interesting. And it, 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 it made me really like her character a lot as the novel went on. You know, it's interesting, Brad, because, you know, what you say is true that the women kind of keep on going. Rebecca's mom is, is still working as an activist. David's mom doesn't kind of go nuts after his accident. And yet they still feel very disempowered to me. You know, David's mom is unable to prevent David's father from making these threats and shutting down Mama, though she's not able to stand up and say, well, no, David loves this place and he wouldn't want you to do this. And, you know, you need to stop. She doesn't have, it doesn't feel like she has, as one of my friends from college and I used to talk about who has hand in the relationship. She has no mm -hmm. hand. And even Rebecca, it was interesting to me that she is so motivated, much like the men that we see in the book, by living up to this ideal that her father presents to her. Her mom works for the paper too, but we hear almost nothing about her mom. And it is, it's, you know, it's her father, when her father says something about, you know, how much the braces are going to cost, she decides I shouldn't have braces. Mm -hmm. When her father says, oh, instead of coming to work for the newspaper this summer, you would, you know, do better by going and being a, a counselor at Lamalo. She does what he says because she always wants that as, as the men do this kind of like respect and feeling that she is living up to the ideal child that her father desires. And yet something that you mentioned earlier, Brad, is the way that even though these women feel disempowered and, you know, I will say that Rebecca's boyfriend at the end, he does not feel like she's reached some sort of peace with like, I'm going to have a quieter, less activist existence. That moment to me, you know, what we get of her in the semester after the summer at Lamalo when she returns to college and changes her major is feels very defeated, very much a surrender. She just feels like nothing matters anymore. And so why, why bother? Like, so she'll just be like normal people. She'll have a boyfriend and, you know, they'll have sex and they'll listen to music and just like, who cares? It's just, it is such a, a defeat that switches at the very, very end when there's this moment when she decides to join this protest and she kind of takes action again and she just has this moment of deciding to be active even if she doesn't know if it's going to make a difference. But that's a real switch, I think, from what we see of her with the boyfriend. And I hope that that is followed by the breaking up with the terrible boyfriend. <laughs> but what I, what, I want, what I started to say was, you know, Brad, what you mentioned earlier is the way that the women in this novel get things done. You know, they are the ones who do the cooking at the camp, who do the cleaning. It is Don's longtime girlfriend, partner, who is the one who takes care of him after his stroke. You know, they take care of the children, they take care of the men, and they kind of go unrecognized for it. And I think it's a very quiet way of acknowledging how important they are while still acknowledging, you know, how powerless they can be in a world in which they still figure so largely. Yeah, I think, too, and, you know, when we watch, the, again, the men around them who are largely responsible for their need to sort of come in and clean up, I guess, in many ways, literally, but then also in, in a figurative sort of metaphorical sense, right? It's I don't know. In the in the 80s, certainly Exxon. I'd have to look back, but I don't imagine that was a, a very sort of women-centric company, right? And they've they've come in and kind of made a mess of things. And it's the the women who are able to sort of persist with a few businesses and kind of keep families going. Well, I thought maybe we could end by talking about this idea of myth versus truth. There's a moment where 
Caleb says he's talking about the origin story that he tells of Lamalo every summer. And he says, the myth stood in for the truth, which was all anyone wanted anyway. And I was intrigued by this idea that what we desire is myth versus truth. And this question of whether there is in fact an objective truth to start with, or if it depends on who's telling the story. You know, there's that famous saying about, you know, history is told by the victors. And does that make it less true in some way? Especially by, I'm curious with you guys' response, Chris, as you as a writer and a teacher of fiction, Brad, you teach fiction as well. You know, this idea that a story can stand in for the truth. Does that yeah. make it, does that make it less real in some way? Or is that being far too forgiving of Caleb has his myth-making really crossed a line into falsehood and deception. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was, I, again, I'm sure that was one of the things that drew me to Caleb's character as I was reading was that he, you can see, you know, him sort of inventing this all, you know, sort of uh, along the way. But, I, and I think, you know, it, 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 it worked really well for me. You know, obviously Caleb is sort of being a little manipulative of the truth as he, you know, I, I like, you know, in 1982 night when they sort of, you know, almost have like a whole festival about his, you know, his myth or kind of his lies about how it all began. But but he's also, you know, he's a storyteller. He's, you know, he, he keeps the campers sort of, you know, he's there to inspire them and to make them believe in something, you know, big and sort of grand and magical. And for me, it, I, I thought that was just a, a great example of the power of storytelling you know and and also for rebecca in the novel who you know starts off with uh, you know these very firm ideas about the different stances that she's going to take and the the politics of everything that are really you know really kind of parroting what her father is telling her and by the end of it i think she's starting to understand that there's more nuance to these things and that you know even i, I think we think of nonfiction and journalism as truth and storytelling and fiction as as falsehoods uh, you know falsehoods that serve a truth but i think she's starting to realize maybe there there's a much blurrier line between all these things than before and you know in a, in a really kind of amazing way right that you know this the stories and the myths that Caleb tells for a novel that is so focused on everyone wants to figure out how to or, or at least they're claiming that they want to help make the world a better place right like caleb for all of his flaws and lies and everything he, you know he does that he creates a a place in you know where kids come and learn and grow and are inspired and that that part is is very real and to see rebecca at the end realizing i don't know the the power of that i thought was really great yeah, I'd agree, Chris, and I, it, it, it's a, a really sort of fascinating part of the novel for me, too, because as, as tricky as Caleb is, I think sometimes intentionally, sometimes very unintentionally, the, the result is a, a strong one, right? A very sort of great summer camp experience that we would hope kids are able to have and come away sort of appreciating this part of nature and each other and the world that they didn't have access to before. And then again, at the same time, right, it's it's complicated by the, the falsity and again, probably by these men who sort of create the myths that they need in order to believe things for themselves and also to change other people, right? Caleb knows. He, he's a good reader of other people. And I, there's an ex, a couple explicit points in the novel. He says, well, all they needed was X, right? This piece of a story and that'll do it. That'll get them to mm -hmm. come with me. And it's and that's, you know, what, what Exxon probably said when they 
they moved right. into the area and said, we can do this for you. And this is, this is the best use for your land. And no doubt, you know, the, the double L mm-hmm. ranch folks thought the same thing that the native people weren't using the land the way it ought to be used. And then, and then comes in the, you know, high price beer pub at the end. And this is the best use for the land. And we all have these sort of myths about the, the way things were meant to be. And I think it's also connected to the way that we have myths about ourselves and who we are. So, you know, it gets into this question that I think the novel grapples with a lot of identity. And is there some fundamental core of identity of who we are, or does it depend on how people see us? And how much of that is dependent on what we present to them? And there's a moment fairly early in the in the novel where Rebecca, as the counselor, starts carrying around her backpack, uh, even though no one can actually see what's inside because she sort of has these props. If she has the books that she reads and or she has a copy of her father's newspaper, she feels like herself, but she needs the props to know who she is. And Caleb needs this story to be the person he aspires to be. And he needs props too. He needs the cowboy hat, you know. And and I think that, you know, what the what the novel comes down on is this idea that identity is not stable, that there isn't a stable self, and that it is somewhere in between, you know, this question of who you are at the core, how you're seen and how you present yourself to the world. And it's not deception necessarily. You know, there's a line right at the end where Rebecca says, she wanted to call David and explain whoever he'd been on Eamon's Mesa, that boy, that beautiful and confident boy was with him still just as Caleb was both visionary and deceitful. There was no line, fine or otherwise. One carried the other, and Rebecca was just one person, prudish and desirous, optimistic and hopeless. Just one Rebecca. Well, Chris and Brad, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Sid. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH Community Radio, 103.5 FM. Next up, New Haven librarian Margaret Gerges recommends the novel The Chicago Race Riot of 1919 by Claire Hartfield. Hi, this is Margaret Gerges, teen librarian at the New Haven Free Public Library. This week, I'm reviewing A Few Red Drops, The Chicago Race Riot of 1919 by Claire Hartfield. I chose this book for a couple of reasons. I love history and I'm interested in social movements today seeking greater social equity. I selected this title for a view of racial struggles in a historical setting. This book showed me that and so much more. It opens dramatically with the events of July 27, 1919, when Eugene Williams was killed for, as some put it, straying too close to a white beach. The killing led to more than a week of bloodshed throughout Chicago. Hartfield then steps back in time to further establish the history leading up to this brutal onslaught of violence. She paints a picture of Chicago from before the end of the Civil War, Chicago as a destination for freedmen and escaped slaves, sometimes final, sometimes a mere resting point before continuing on to true freedom in Canada, a city that was accepting of blacks, allowing them to establish themselves in society in a way that few cities north or south did. For example, Hartfield reports, in 1850, U.S. law stated that any person who knew of an escaped slave was required to report and turn them in. However, the city of Chicago flatly refused to comply with that law. She quotes the city council as stating, We do not aid or assist in the arrest of fugitives from oppression. At the same time, Chicago was a destination for others. Immigrants poured in from Europe. Entrepreneurs and inventors sought Chicago out to establish businesses in manufacturing, butchering, and meat production. The city had a huge workforce available 
and a fortune could be made if it was harnessed and controlled. However, tensions mounted, not only between races, but everywhere. Cultures clashed. Newly arrived Americans found disdain in the eyes and mouths of older, more established Chicagoans. The owners and founders of factories hired and fired on whims, and newly forming unions were fighting for fair pay and working conditions. Even the massive number of jobs available wasn't enough to give every migrant and immigrant a job, and when the jobs were handed out, it was often prejudicially. Those turned away from a job found relief in turning their anger toward others, people different than themselves. While there were efforts to unite for greater social good without regard to race, the efforts often broke down under the influence of biased governments and a police force that turned a blind eye to crimes against blacks. Hartfield concludes her work with an in-depth discussion of the aftermath of Williams's death. The daily mobs, the attempts at protection, and the weakness of the city government are all laid bare in her recounting of the week-long carnage. As Hartfield herself pointed out, the events of July 1919 opened America's eyes to the reality of racial oppression. I strongly recommend this title to readers interested in history, in racial equity, and in social movements in general. In addition to the intense and well-written content, the book is nicely illustrated and includes an excellent bibliography, making this title perfect for students as well as casual readers. Just a reminder, you can find all books reviewed here at the New Haven Free Public Library at 133 Elm Street, New Haven. You can also stop in and visit our teen center located on the lower level of the library, where we will be happy to assist you in locating this or any other titles you are seeking. Thanks, Margaret. On our next show, airing May 30th, we'll be talking about the novel Mother of Invention, first with the author, Haley Wolfson Widger, and then with my guests, Tui Sutherland and Brian Slattery. Make sure to tune in. You can see what else is coming up and listen to old episodes on our website, booktalkradio.net. And as ever, you can share your thoughts about this episode or any other on Facebook or Twitter, or by emailing me directly at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. And a few announcements for those of you in the New Haven area. Tomorrow, Thursday, May 3rd at 6 p.m., I'll be in conversation with Yale alum Amanda Stouffer about her new novel, Match Made in Manhattan, right here at the Barnes & Noble in New Haven. For those of you who didn't get enough of Heather Abel on the show today, she'll be speaking at R.J. Julia's in Madison on Wednesday, May 16th at 7 p.m. And on Friday, May 25th, author Lisa Coe, who appeared on our show last July, will be at the Wesleyan R.J. Julia Bookstore in Middletown at 7.30, talking about her National Book Award-nominated novel, Believers. Check them all out if you can. Until next time, happy reading.